0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food video supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
2: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
1: Hello, welcome to Japan it's, I'm your host, Aki Koteama, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding understanding Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi every day in the supermarket, but what is the on sushi? We hear dashi ramen kaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify this program with good guests. My guest today is Mike Sajinova, who is the chef-owner of Akahoshi Ramen in Chicago, which opened in November 2023. Mike joined us in episode 280 in November 2022 and shared his fascinating story of how a young man who grew up in Chicago got into Japanese culture, ended up living in Japan and discovered the profound world of ramen. Among ramen connoisseurs and aficionados, Mike has been known as Ramen Lord on Reddit. He has been generously sharing valuable knowledge and educating whoever wants to learn about ramen so that they don't have to go through the hardship of not finding relevant information to make a good bowl of ramen by themselves. And ramen has become very popular in the U.S. in the last two decades or so, and it would be fair to say, ramen has become a part of American food culture. Mike's new ramen shop has been gaining huge attention since its opening and Akahoshi Ramen represents the potential for ramen as a global cuisine beyond a Japanese traditional noodle dish. So today we'll discuss how Mike got into ramen, why he decided to quit his successful job as a market research analyst to open ramen shop, the challenges he has faced in opening and running a ramen shop in Chicago, the soulful ramen he offers at Akahoshi Ramen and much much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write we do, we really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Mike Satinova. Hello Mike, welcome back to the show. And uh, last time we spoke on the show, you promised to come back when we opened your ramen shop. So, here we are. Congratulations. Yes,
3: yes. Happy to be back. Thank you for having me again.
1: <laughs> so this is exciting. I'm so happy for you that you really successfully opened such a popular ramen shop. I
3: know. I can't believe it either, frankly. It's uh, quite, uh, <laughs> quite, the, quite the adventure so far.
1: Mm. Right. So for listeners who have not listened to uh, the fascinating episode 280, so tell us your background. So where you're from and how did you get into ramen?
3: So I'm from Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb just outside of Chicago, Illinois, and I've lived in the Chicago land area pretty much my whole life. Uh, I got into ramen mostly through getting into Japan and Japanese. I studied Japanese in high school and then majored in it in college. And then in college, I did a study abroad for one year in Hokkaido, specifically in Sapporo, Hokkaido, at Hokkaido University, Hokkaido Daigaku and sapporo one of the big foods in sapporo is miso ramen and i had loved food and cooking for a long time in fact early in high school i wanted to be a chef and so i just was very fascinated by local cuisine started eating it started really getting into it (laughs) i was a poor college student so ramen was really affordable and it kind of just became more and more a part of my life so much so that i was effectively studying it uh, as part of an independent study in college and when I came back, it was gone. The only way to kind of scratch that itch was to start making it. And that was in 2010. So I've been making ramen then for the last 13 years at a relatively consistent basis. And it just kept growing and growing in popularity until eventually I realized I could make it a big part of my life and not just make it a hobby. And that's kind of how we've gotten to where I am now.
1: Mm, right. So it's interesting. Uh, one of Listening to uh, 280, episode two, 280, um, I really uh, reconfirmed your analytical mindset. The way you speak, mm. it's so fact-based. And I think you are. I don't know which came first. You became a market research analyst because of your mindset, or you were trained also to be so analytical. But um, I think the, the way you acquired your knowledge of ramen without being trained in Japan was really impressive and fascinating. So what do you think of that? Is it related to your background of analytical?
3: I think it's sort of a chicken or the egg question in so much that I think I am an analytical person by, I don't know if it's by genetics or by just my upbringing. You know, I grew in a very scientifically rigorous household. My family is all very math-centric. You know, my grandfather was a math professor. My brother is an engineer. So we have like kind of a predisposition, I think, to this kind of analytical thinking. And I was raised certainly to appreciate that. But in the same way, I didn't know what I was doing when I was making ramen. And to make sense of it required giving myself guidance and guardrails and consistency elements. And I've always been of the mindset that numbers and data help align to consistency. Anybody who cooks recognizes that this isn't always the case. There is some sort of intangible quality of cooking, right? The feeling, the emotive, emotive feeling. But if you don't have any of that, where do you start? And some sort of you know, objectivity was helpful in terms of starting me off, especially given that I began making ramen with basically no knowledge whatsoever.
0: Mm,
1: right. So, and you're a very, I think, uh, inherently curious person. That's why you studied Mm -hmm. Japanese from high school and all those things and culminated in ramen shop that you started to work on. So, but you had a very successful career as a market research analyst and, um, you know, but you decided to quit uh, that job and open a ramen shop. So um, why did you do that?
3: I mean, that was not like a sudden random decision for the record. I think that, you know, I had, as I mentioned, I would wanted to pursue cooking as a passion for, you know, before I became a market researcher. But after having dabbled in it, you know, I did kind of an unpaid stagiaire position for a year in a local Italian restaurant and found the work environment very uh, abusive and often difficult. I, I just felt like a more, you know, traditional work, Path might be more suitable for me. But I always just felt that itch to go back to cooking and, and producing food for people professionally. And gradually, as the as I became more in love with ramen and also noticed that there was an opportunity there, the it kind of just reignited that passion for me, if that, if you will. And mm. I, I started very slowly. I, I started doing pop-ups in the city of Chicago. In other areas and their popularity further vindicated i think that uh that drive that there was something here that i didn't you know i think opening a restaurant is really tough frankly and i cannot imagine how difficult it would be if you didn't have people who were interested in your work like if you were just somebody giving it a shot right So by testing it a little bit and seeing if people were actually interested, that helped kind of give me some confidence to say, okay, this restaurant, if I open it, maybe people will come, maybe they will actually visit. And that's, I think, you know, ultimately the success of the business is predicated on people actually coming to eat the food, right? Like they have to come and and visit routinely. So, you know, over a course of five or so years, I gradually identified if this could be a business actually. And after like year three or four, it became obvious to like, okay, this is not a fluke. This is not a flop. This is something legitimate that people seem to enjoy and I certainly enjoy. And so we should be pursuing this more seriously, mm-hmm. but it didn't start that way. Right. Like it was just a hobby for a long time. It just kind of gradually transformed as, you know, I I saw how I enjoyed it and I saw how others enjoyed it.
1: Mm. Do you think people came to your place because, of i don't know the lack like in new york city there are millions of ramen shops and in chicago i don't think there's many but also the quality that you offer is outstanding so these are the elements you think uh, that made your <laughs> popularity already pre-opening the restaurant
3: yeah I, I don't really know i mean i think there's an element of there, there's several It's a confluence of a lot of different things. I think some of it is, yes, I think we do deliver really high quality ramen. I think I've dedicated a lot of time to learning about this and I care very deeply about the product we make and I'm heavily involved in all facets of the production even in, you know in the pop-ups I was literally making everything, right So I was super involved and really wanted to deliver something high quality in the same way though, I also think there's an element of scarcity and hype that has been gradually building around this. And I think there's also this narrative that is kind of compelling, which is it is a chef-driven ramen restaurant. And chef-driven concepts, I think, are popular. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to open is because I knew I could make it chef-driven. I knew it's like it wasn't just some nameless, faceless place. It was my ramen shop. And if people wanted to learn about ramen from me, this was the place to do it at. So having a little bit of... uh, a specificity in terms of who this restaurant represents, you know, who is this restaurant about, that I think is compelling to certain people. It's not just some giant corporation. It's just a guy mm. who loves ramen, right? It's just, it's just Mike who loves ramen. He wanted to open a ramen shop. That's very compelling.
1: Interesting. And also Chicago is a home of Alinea, which is very uh, analytical, scientific, and also creative, super creative-minded yeah. restaurant. So maybe there's a culture for you already there.
3: Maybe. I mean, certainly, you know, all the analytical work in the world only helps if the food itself turns out to be delicious, right? Mm. So it still has to be good. You know, I can gram mm. and measure and scale and be as precise as I want, but if the recipe's bad, the recipe is still bad. So, mm. you know, it, a, a customer comes in and they're curious about, they maybe they've heard some things about a ramen, but they still have to like the ramen at the end of the day, right? For all right. The, the analysis is just part of a narrative or part of a thing for me to help me establish control and optimization. But it ultimately comes down to how did the customer feel? Did they have a good time? Did they enjoy the food, right? Mm. And no amount of analytics can necessarily perfect that, right? It's a subjective thing too. So I don't know if, if the – I think the analytical side of it has helped me – Establish some stability, but it, we're still working on it. There are imperfect things that are happening constantly at the shop. I think people just like the food, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's good because I like the food too. I mean, I eat it all the time, so <laughs> I certainly hope right. so.
1: Yeah, and I think I read an article about, in which you said uh, about opening a restaurant. Uh, I cannot not do it. That's the comment. So you really yeah. uh, devoured everything you have into this concept of ramen, to create mm-hmm. the ramen and maybe to the public to communicate the beauty of it, it's almost like your mission, a life work kind of thing. That I yeah. So, it definitely yeah. feels that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So, um, so Iko's ramen, uh, which opened in November 2023 last year, so it has 55 seats and uh, has been one of the hottest new restaurants in Chicago, right off the it's opening, started to get a reputation. So what is the concept of Akahoshi Ramen? And uh, what is the goal that you want to... uh,
3: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that I answer it by saying what I tell... So we have a pre-shift meeting before service every day. And I always introduce the pre-shift meeting by saying the date. And I say, this is Akahoshi Ramen. We serve ramen and not much else. And I know that sounds kind of tongue in cheek, but that is kind of the mission statement, which is... I wanted to open a ramen shop that really just served ramen. Like its goal is to serve the best ramen we can. And I don't have anything else on the menu because I don't want to distract from that goal. I felt like very clearly ramen is complicated and difficult. And for us to deliver the ramen I wanted to, we had to be very focused and very specialized. So we only have ramen. We've got like two or three rice sides, but it's basically just because I wanted them and not because they're difficult to put together. The ramen is what the shop is about. And our mission is to deliver the best ramen we can.
0: We Mm. only have a
3: handful of ramens right now. We have four that are kind of always on the menu. And then we have a special that rotates each month. And that's Mm. really what that ramen is about. Within the context Mm. of the shop, there is a big component of education like I love talking about the dish and kind of showcasing it and discussing the components with guests or talking about what the history of the dish. So, you know, as an example, as of this recording, uh, the special this month is, uh, is something called Muroran curry ramen, which is a very specific style of ramen that emerges from the Muroran town in Hokkaido. It emerges, I want to say in the seventies and you know, who's heard of this style of ramen before? I mean, I hadn't even really heard of it until a couple years ago. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to be able to showcase these local variations. So I always try and bring that into the fold too, right? Like ramen is a nuanced and complicated dish. And I think that there is a lot of further unpacking that one can have about it in the United States. And Akahoshi is a place to kind of do that in a very physical, concrete way by actually showing the dish, like making the dish in that way, right? Mm. So there's an educational element within the context of make the best ramen possible, which is make ramen that helps people learn more about ramen
1: in that way. Mm, Right. So I've seen, um, you know, great American chefs, ramen shops, but yours is almost confirming Japanese tradition and uh, it's almost like inside out (laughs) you scientifically Mm. analyze what's in there and you really try to kind of represent what it is about uh, But yeah so I was very impressed so why did you name your ramen shop Akahoshi Ramen
3: yeah that's that's a good one I mean depending on who you speak to it could be Akahoshi or Akaboshi The two characters that make up that term are red, Akai, Akai no Aka. So Akai, red, and then Hoshi, or it would be Boshi in some some readings of this uh, word, star. So uh, it's essentially a a rough translation of red star. That terminology is used in a couple ways uh, uh, in, in Hokkaido specifically. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, The flag of Hokkaido has a star, a red star specifically on it, which is used to designate the North Star because Hokkaido during kind of the Meiji Restoration period is kind of seen as like the northern frontier for uh, the Japanese government. Japanese government has occupied Hokkaido for a long time at this point, but not really established itself as true owners of the land until that time period and to be fair there's some problems with this (laughs) there's some some serious colonialization problems with this but i digress uh you know the the red star represents this kind of new frontier idealism and to this day if you walk around sapporo the capital of hokkaido that prefecture you will see uh, on some occasions little red stars decorating certain uh, official institutions the old government building has red stars on it the clock tower has old red stars on it um You know, certain buildings on Hokkaido University, the first, you know, which is really the first designated space built by the Japanese government, uh, have red stars on it. So these red stars are kind of symbolic of Sapporo and Hokkaido fundamentally. In -hmm. the same way, in Chicago, if you look at the city flag, the city flag has four red six-pointed stars on it. And so I like that this name effectively encapsulated two places uh, that were important to my life and to who I am as a person, right? I grew up in Chicago, Chicagoland area, so Chicago. And I studied abroad in Hokkaido and learned my love of ramen in Hokkaido. And so this name represents effectively those two concepts being pushed together uh, as Akahoshi.
1: Mm, right. Totally makes sense. Mm. <laughs> like, What do you do exactly represent uh, what the red stars like a Hoshi means. So right. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Well named. Um, okay. So, and also like, you know, the whole culture of Hokkaido used to be, they, Hokkaido used to be called uh, Gaichi, like outside land. And also yeah. there's the Ainu, um, you know, like a uh, native. Uh,
3: right. The indigenous native. Ainu
2: people.
1: Right. So there's like all any place, like almost any countries have that issue. But I think Ainu cuisine started to be more like, like shit. You know, get more focused on how to appreciate it or some culturally we try to preserve it, something like that. So Mm -hmm. hopefully that cultural awareness, we're going to continue and also uh, develop into something uh, right. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, we really (laughs) observed everything in Hokkaido and uh, probably way more than average Japanese person, which is exciting because your ramen uh, includes a lot of, uh, Sapporo-style ramen, right. Right? so I will discuss it later. So, uh, okay, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into the ramen, of our Takahoshi ramen, which represents Mike's unique philosophy and very hard work, so please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is part of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Coin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katayama, and my guest today is Mike Sardinova, who is the chef-owner of Akahoshi Ramen in Chicago, which opened in November 2023. So let's talk about your ramen. So what do you call the style of ramen you offer at Akahoshi Ramen? Oh,
3: that's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, we have four different ramens on the menu plus the special. I think it depends on kind of which dish you're looking at. You know, the the kind of flagship bowl of ramen that we make is called the Akahoshi Miso. And that is heavily inspired by Sapporo-style Miso ramen. So it does a couple things that are really quintessential to that region's variation of Miso ramen. And to be clear, Miso ramen may or may not have been invented in Sapporo in 1955. There's some contestant... There's some kind of discussion about where it's invented, but the general consensus is that it kind of emerges from Sapporo in that time period. And it has the following criteria. The first is it uses a wok. That's a little unorthodox for ramen making in general, where most of the time it follows a set procedure of assembly in the bowl itself. Uh, In Hokkaido, the wok is very critical to the success of uh, the, the flavor profile. You get a lot of this kind of, you know, aerolization of fat particles that uh, combust when they hit the flame and it gives you what they call wok hay or the kind of breath of the wok. That flavor is really critical and kind of quintessential to the sapro style miso ramen. Um, so a wok is, is is essentially mandatory. And so we have a wok at Akahoshi Miso that's only use is to make miso ramen. That's the whole purpose of that one station is just to make miso ramen. The second component is the noodle. So the inventor of miso ramen, Ajino Sampe, worked very closely with a noodle manufacturer now known as Nishiyama Seimen during that period to develop a very specific noodle for the dish, one that wouldn't sog out, one that would have its robustness. And, that noodle is notably higher in protein, higher sometimes in egg content, which is a little unorthodox, but not atypical, and is also aged at room temperature for a long period of time to develop a complex flavor and texture. And so we don't have egg in ours, but we do a number of similar techniques to that style of noodle. It's a curly noodle, it's slightly thicker. You know, I think ours is about 1.6 millimeters right now. Um, it's curly, it's got really dense texture from long periods of aging and we really try and nail that texture and the third thing that is kind of classic to you know miso ramen is just a little bit of like austere topping with a sizable amount of lard so lard is a big component of the dish depending upon which kind of generation of miso ramen makers you see the quantities vary considerably so you know Ajino Sampe, it's a pretty sizable amount At newer shops like Junen or Sumire, it's an egregious amount, like a half-inch thick cap of lard coating the surface. And then at more (laughs) modern shops, it's maybe less. And so we kind of play with it. For ours, it's about 20 to 30 cc's of lard per bowl. We're kind of more dialed in into that later stage. But we really want to think about these components. That being said, it's not truly a full sapro-style miso ramen for a couple of reasons. One, sapro-style miso ramen almost universally uses pork bones in the soup. It's very atypical to use anything besides that or to exclude pork. And our soup is a chicken soup. We have no pork in that soup, actually, except for the lard, which, you know, lard is delicious. I just couldn't get rid of it. But the, the soup is chicken only at our shop, and that is a little atypical. The second thing that is a little different is, is um, our miso blend is a little different. So in Hokkaido, it's pretty common to blend variants of white and red miso, and we certainly do that. But we also incorporate hacho miso, which is a type of miso that only uses soybean in the mix. Most miso is a combination of soybeans that are mashed and something called koji. And I'm, I'm mostly speaking to listeners here. I assume Akiko, you know this already, but you know koji is this inoculated rice that's been inoculated with a, a, a fungus that gives miso its flavor. Hacho miso, that fungus is inoculated on the soybean itself. And so the production is much different and the flavor is very different uh, substantially. So we incorporate Hacho just because I like the flavor, but that is super rare. I don't think I've ever even seen a Sapporo shop that uses Hacho. And that might just be my ignorance. I, I don't know. I, I don't. Wanna, there's so many ramen shops in Sapporo alone. There's over a thousand or something. But the, it's pretty rare to use that in the blend. But we do because we like it. So fundamentally speaking, at a high level, I think stylistically, we have a lot of the similar components. We're using a wok. We're using the miso in the wok. We're hitting it. The, we have bean sprouts, moyashi, very classic Japanese vegetable in miso ramen. The toppings are austere. We use a blend of misos, lots of similar co- concepts, but also variances in concept right? There's just inherent differences. And some of those are just choices that I made as I was developing the recipe over the last decade or so. So I don't know what it is. It's Sapporo style ramen, but also not. I don't know. It's kind of (laughs) become its own thing.
1: Right. But uh, I have to say that, you know, the Sapporo, I mean, the who um, listen to episode 280. Mike explained that even within Hokkaido, which is the northern part of Japan, and it's very cold um, he, uh, mike explained different variations within Hokkaido and the Sapporo is uh, the capital of Hokkaido and they have a very distinctive style and then uh you know Hachomiso is from Nagoya area mainly so it's kind of like interesting and very right. uh, thoughtful idea to add miso because i think Hachomiso tend to be darker color and more flavorful and umami and you know so enhance that deliciousness. And also I think using chicken and stock, I think it's make it more cleaner, lighter, and people want to keep coming back instead of once a week, you can come back and twice a week kind of thing. (laughs) That's my opinion. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, the soup we use is definitely lighter in terms of its viscosity and definitely in terms of its uh, fat content, right? It's a very clear chicken soup, so that's that's true. But it's still a it's a decently rich bowl. I mean, still got a good amount of lard on it, comparatively, you know?
1: Right. So that's why you probably need a balance of chicken as well, in compared yeah. to like,
3: uh, <laughs> Just like quintessential. If we, <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Right. So, uh, and you have uh, other types. Do you want to talk about other types of ramen?
3: Yeah, so... In Hokkaido, if you go to a miso ramen shop, they almost always also have a shoyu ramen on the menu. In fact, they usually have a shoyu and a shio, which they call like the three tastes, right? So I thought it was pretty important that we also have a shoyu on the menu. So we have a shoyu, but it's got kind of your quintessential Japanese flavors. It's kind of got some Tokyo-inspired notes to it. It's heavier on the niboshi; Those are those dried sardines that are very common in ramen cooking, uh, it uses the same chicken soup base, but it doesn't have any miso. It's more classic in terms of its feel. But we use a sapro-style noodle in it. So it's got sort of nods to that alternative that you would find at a sapro-style ramen shop, right? It's You would find this kind of you at a, a sapro-style ramen shop potentially. Um, so that's the other main soup ramen on the menu. And then we have two soupless ramens, which is more of a – Mike likes soupless ramen so he put it on the menu type situation. Uh, the first is uh, something called Shirunash tantan men or soupless tantan tan men. Tantan tan men is a loosely inspired by dan dan noodle dish so it's got ground sesame and you know kind of vinegar and chili oil and spices and we use a different noodle, a more flat wide noodle for that that's better at like being coated in sauce akin to like a pasta if you will. Uh and then we have, uh, you know, and it's, it's just like kind of tasty. We top it with this uh, ground pork mixture called, you know, soboro, which is very common and more of those spices and uh, a little bit of bok choy for texture and color. And it's kind of this rich sesame, flavorful, spicy dish that it's kind of interesting because, you know, if you say tantanmen men in Japan, most of the time people think, at least my understanding for a long time was that You're referring to tantanmen, the ramen, which was a soup dish, but it's derived from dandan noodles, which are not a soup dish. And so there's kind of this interesting food pathway in Japan about how men turned into a soup dish and then then reverted later as newer shops open as like shirunashi tantanmen or soupless tantanmen. And so we've kind of taken that latter portion and kind of developed it and changed it for what we like in the ramen. So that dish exists on the menu, and I, I don't think that one's ever going away. It's super good. I eat it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just like it's like all my ramen. And then the fourth ramen initially was kind of like I, I felt like we were gonna have a lot of waste product in terms of making chashu, and I needed a way to use some of that waste product. So rather than throwing out end pieces of chashu, you know, it made sense to develop a dish that could use those those components in a delicious way. And so we have an Abara Soba basically on the menu. It's a very loose version of Abara Soba. You know, Abara Soba is this style of ramen that kind of emerges in the 70s near... In Tokyo, it's kind of near universities, arguably Wasada University is where this thing initially becomes popular. It's basically a soupless ramen. You just take the tare and the oil and you toss the noodles in it and then you add lots of textured toppings to it. And so we kind of up that and make it a little more you know, distinct by adding like fried shallot and fried garlic for texture and the chashu pieces are cubed up and kind of molten and succulent and then we have some alliums on there for freshness and brightness and it's kind of this fun alternate of ramen, it's like a stirring ramen, it's soupless, it's kind of garlicky, it's kind of punchy, it's got some MSG in it. It just kind of no frills but really really tasty. And that was mm-hmm. the four. For a while, those were the only dishes we had on the menu, at least for the first month. We didn't have any specials or anything else. It was just four ramens. This year, we've introduced a special each month that kind of encapsulates either regional style or just a sort of esoteric type of ramen that people haven't really heard of. You know, I just I just wanted to have another on the menu that was different and was sort of ephemeral and would go away after a while, right? Rather than just constantly changing the menu, having something that would shift. So each month we plan on introducing a different one typically a regional variant for this year and then maybe next year we'll see kind of what that special will be but mm-hmm. showcasing ramen in its various ways is, is an important component to me
1: right well that's that's going to keep you excited as well because it's right. very creative team. yeah <laughs> right and also um you know uh these are five items but um It's very hard to perfect everything. And on top of it, Mm -hmm. you decided to make your own ramen noodles, which is very challenging. And Mm -hmm. even in Japan, uh, it's very difficult. And uh, many shops opt out not to make their own. They just order noodles. But but you do make your own noodles. So why did you decide to do that?
3: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Initially, I wasn't planning on doing it. I have a very good relationship with Sun Noodle, and I really love them, and their product is fantastic. And so initially, I felt like it might just make sense to buy noodles. But as I got down the path of opening this shop, I quickly realized that I enjoyed the flexibility of making my own noodle and the ability to change a recipe or update a recipe or make a noodle to whatever specification I wanted. And an example of this is, you know, last month we had something called Akayu Spicy Miso Ramen, which is another type of miso that emerges in the late 50s in Yamagata Prefecture. And he uses a very distinct noodle that is thick and then hand massaged. If I wanted to buy a noodle like this, I would have to special order it and it would be cost prohibitively expensive. And so I just liked the idea of being like, well, I know what this noodle is supposed to be like. I can figure out a way to make it and we can make it the way that's supposed to be for this dish. And we can just have what we want and not worry about sourcing it or finding another person to make it. I didn't feel like I felt like it allowed me a lot of creative freedom. Um, and I just really felt like if I wanted to tell everybody that we made everything in the restaurant, that also had to mean that we made the noodle. So I'm lucky in that I have been making noodles for a long time prior to opening this ramen shop, just certainly not at this scale. But I have some foundational knowledge on noodle making. But I'll agree with you that noodle making is brutally difficult. And I understand why many shops, especially in Japan, don't. Unlike in Japan, in America, you've got maybe two or three manufacturers to choose from and the the type of noodles that you might be able to select are very limited. In Japan, you've got dozens and dozens of manufacturers per city and they'll often do a custom noodle for you or have a variety of SKUs for you based on kind of your specific needs so you really do get a more tailored experience and that allows a shop that is operating an extremely high level to still do that even if they're buying the noodle for me, mm. I felt like I wanted that level of execution, but there wasn't, you know, like the best noodle manufacturer, son, they give me, there's four options to pick from. And I just wanted more flexibility. That was ultimately mm. where the decision came down to. Right. I think that that has resulted in us to expand our creativity a lot. You know, I, Last month, we did three different noodles. Next, we're doing two now because the curry that we have on the menu now is from Hokkaido. So it uses a noodle extremely similar to a Sapporo sound noodle. Mm-hmm. But next month, we have a different dish and that one will need its own separate noodle. And I just like that mm-hmm. I can do that. I can just change my mind. I can just say, yeah, it's going to be this noodle next month. And that's mm-hmm. that's fine. That works for me.
0: Right. It's a lot
3: of work, but I think the result is a, a really strong product and one that we can say is distinctly ours and no one else's.
1: Mm. Well, I heard that uh, it takes five hours a day uh, to, to produce uh, like 300 servings. Yeah,
3: yeah, give or take. And right, <laughs> right now I'm the only one doing it. So every noodle that leaves the restaurant has been made by me currently.
1: Mm. Well, I'm sure your arms are like going to the gym. Like, uh. <laughs> five hours a day.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Right.
1: Well, but I think uh, that really makes sense that you choose to make noodles by yourself. Otherwise, you know, your curiosity and uh, pursuing the consistency by data. Uh, otherwise, you open the restaurant, but you probably get bored quickly. Uh, according to what I, who you are, and you have to keep pursuing. Uh, it's like a Japanese, uh, you know, martial arts kind of mindset. There's no end. You have to pursue, right. pursue. <laughs> So, and uh, I heard the machine was expensive. Was especially it was, uh, it, was. Yeah, it
3: was expensive. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: right. So, but to keep you going, uh, it was like almost including a shipment. It's like a uh, forty-five thousand dollars or something. 40000 uh, forty, forty, yep.
3: yeah. It's, uh, okay. it's a Yamato Richmond one. It was imported from Japan. Uh, it took almost a year from start to finish to get the noodle machine. I purchased it. Initially thinking I was going to open in a different space and then that deal fell through. But by the time I had already submitted, you know, the first half of payments, I was like, okay, I got to get this machine. I received the machine in 2022 and I didn't have anywhere else to put it. So I just put it in my apartment for like
1: a year. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's your best friend now. You just lived it, was. With it really was. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> right. of
3: vacant where it used to be. Like I'm looking at where it used to be right now and it's very, it's a little bizarre.
1: Mm. But, um, yeah, I totally understand. Like it's almost like a buying a new car or something, right? Cause you really yeah. get attached to it. You want to do a great job because of the machine as well. So right. It's right. So, um, Do you have any popular items out of your four plus special where people tend to prefer certain things or equally well-selling?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is that the, the American palate gravitates towards certain flavors. They really like tonkotsu as an example. Now, we don't sell tonkotsu, but they really like certain elements of tonkotsu. Notably, its richness, its depth of flavor... It's viscosity. And so in the same way, many people who have been to my shop are still coming for the first time because it's often quite difficult to get into. You know, we have a handful of repeat customers, but many people just cannot get the reservation fast enough. So most people are still coming for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'd say on every on any given day, 80% of customers coming into the shop have never been to the shop before. And so they tend to order at least one Akahoshi miso it's the namesake of the shop. It's rich, it's comforting, it's super hot. It's got a lot of those characteristic qualities that I think people are looking for in the American palate of ramen. So -hmm. that one sells the best far and away. I'd say over half of my sales are that one bowl. From there, things are a little more even keeled. You know, The special, the shoyu, the tantanmen, those sell around the same. Uh, It really just depends on what the special is. And then the abra soba, I think it's kind of our sleeper hit, which like those who order it love it, but a lot of people don't really understand what it is yet. We have to be better about educating people and telling them what it is. Uh, it, it's it's definitely you know it still sells, but it's not as, nearly as popular, of course, as the miso. The miso is just the clear front runner on our menu. Mm,
1: that makes sense. Akashi. So, yeah, it's got means- the name in it. I mean, I'm not <laughs>
3: surprised, right? If I just called it miso ramen, it might not sell as well. But I also just think Americans like miso ramen. Like they're, they like Mm. tonkotsu and then next up is miso ramen. Those are the two, they don't like shoyu or shio as much, right? Which is, you Mm. know, kind of inversely different from uh, Japan, I'd like to say. I mean, most, my understanding at least was that in Japan, shoyu ramen is the most typical style that people kind of grow up eating.
1: Mm, That's my, my case.
3: Yeah, like I, I don't know where you grew up, but unless you grew up in like Hakata, you probably were eating some variant of, sh- of shoyu ramen, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the de facto standard style. But in America, it's tonkotsu. Tonkotsu is the de facto standard style, and so just kind of accept that there are some cultural difference between those two countries in terms of how this dish is uh, is consumed.
1: Mm, interesting. So, I mean, you just opened your place, but since, or well, I would say, what did you faced as challenges since getting ready to open and also running for the last two, two months? And what did you learn from them?
3: Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a lot of challenges. I mean, I've never opened a restaurant before, so everything was an extremely rigorous learning experience very quickly. There's a lot of things that an outsider probably doesn't recognize about a restaurant that are very challenging probably the biggest is, you know, everyone says staffing. And I think, you know, when someone says staffing is a challenge, that can mean a lot of different things. For us, it's just, we're a small restaurant comparatively. So when someone gets sick or when someone, I don't know, God forbid, gets in a car accident, which did happen to one of my staff, it causes a lot of strain on the rest of the team. And mm. I had not figured out a good plan of action for how to deal with that. So often it meant I was just taking the burden on myself because I didn't. I don't want to burden my staff. My staff are really important to me and they they make the restaurant work. So figuring out ways to alleviate the concerns of the staff was challenging for me in ways that mm. I did not anticipate. How could you anticipate when, you know, someone has to call off because they have to go to a funeral, right? Or when someone, you know, someone's, you know, wife is having problems and needs to go to the hospital. How can you anticipate these things? They're not anticipatable. These are just the purpose of the human experience, right? People live their lives and bad things happen to them and they need to deal with them. And as an owner, I'm, you know, I'm constantly aware of needing to be flexible enough to allow them to need to live their lives. These are human beings who are helping me live my dream. I have to help them with their lives too. So I didn't expect that. When I staffed the restaurant, I just assumed everybody would be full time and everything would be great. And the reality is that people have other things going on and sometimes it requires being flexible. So I'm learning that process of like how to develop The redundancy, the ability for people to step in, the ability for people to cover, the ability to maintain uh, production even when people have other things that they need to attend to and being accommodating to those things, which I've tried to be as much as possible. But ideally, accommodate them without me having to be the one who falls on the sword. Do you know what I mean? Like finding Mm. a better, more sustainable path of accommodation is a big part of it. Because it's not like an office job, right? Like in my office job, uh, if you got sick, you could work from home, right? If you got sick, or you just <laughs> take a day off, and it didn't really matter because the level of productivity didn't diminish so much because you're working in a company of like 100, 200, 300 people or whatever. So one or two people being sick didn't in, didn't impact you know production or work as much. And frankly, mm. just being ultra candid, I think often corporations operate with a level of assumed inefficiency that a smaller business does not have the luxury of dealing with. Right? Mm. There's there's all these like sometimes people just mess around in corporate jobs, like and there's not a lot of room to mess around at a, a small ramen shop. We have to be very disciplined and be very uh, you know hands on throughout the course of our day. So mm. staffing has been a challenge, but not in a way that has been upsetting. Just in terms of like. I didn't know. I just genuinely didn't know, having never opened a restaurant. But mm. I think we're doing the best that we can.
1: Right. So the, the picture, it sounds like it's not uh, technical or anything like place, open a place to serve the best food. It's more like your uh, your picture is much bigger. That involves a huge ocean <laughs> and you have to surf around. And every day, I don't know which wave comes next. And this constant.
3: <laughs> I've been lucky in so much that my team has been really awesome. Like everybody who works at Akahoshi is really dedicated, really motivated, really inspired by what we're trying to do. And so I think that that's a rare place for a lot of restaurants who often struggle to find talent who's going to stay motivated and be interested. I'm very lucky in that regard. But Mm -hmm. the challenges instead are just managing it and making sure that it's – that everybody's okay and making sure that everything is good. And that is a challenge. That is a fundamental challenge of being an owner that I did not anticipate. But it's a different challenge, I think, than a lot of restaurants have, frankly. Mm -hmm. I think they deal with much more, you know, kind of more entry-level problems. Like so-and-so just decided not to come to work anymore. I haven't had that problem, right? Like (sighs) – everybody shows up. <laughs> and if they're sick, they, t- they let me know, right? Like everybody's very communicative, but mm. it's still a challenge. It's still a challenge. No question.
1: Right. Interesting. Like, you know, when I go to a restaurant, uh, when I open the door, I instantly feel that energy, uh, positive or negative or, and then whenever the restaurant is very popular, there's good energy. I want to be yeah. a part of it. the kind of thing. So right. it sounds like you have that energy. In your place. That's why one of the reasons you are so popular. Um, but on the other hand, what is the biggest joy of running your own ramen shop?
3: I don't know. It's kind of a lot of things. I love all of it, which is sort of crazy to say because often I'm working like 14 to 16 hours a day. I think I just like the fact that it's mine. Which <laughs> is <just> crazy <laughs> to say. I don't know. But like it's very surreal for me to think about how much work I've put into thinking about ramen and then have it become something concrete and real in the world that a stranger who's never spoken to me or never talked to me can experience just as much as someone who has been to the restaurant 10 times and is a big fan of Akahoshi and potentially of Ramen Lord, right? Like those people can both have the same experience. And that is very surreal and very wonderful in a lot of it's also wonderful that i've been able to bring together this group of people who kind of share this common goal like i didn't i I was worried that i wouldn't be able to and it's awesome that you know despite having to train a lot of people we i think are delivering a really high quality product i mean i know there are always ways to improve it i can see the cracks and the little imperfections in the way we do things but You know, I, I also, I'm really proud of the work that we put out every day. I get to look at this ramen and be like, Oh my God, like some of these bowls of ramen are like what I've dreamed of for the last 13 years. And it's happening Mm -hmm. right now. So, (laughs) and it wasn't because some investor told me it needed to be that way, or it wasn't because I had to like get my butt kicked by a, a really mean chef. Like we just figured out how to do it. And I think customers can sense that. I mean, I think my customers generally enjoy themselves and that's very rewarding too, right? Like, we make a bowl of ramen that I think a lot of people enjoy. That ultimately is why I got into the business.
1: Right. So you self-funded the whole thing yourself?
3: Pretty much. Yeah. I got some help from my folks, but for the most part, I poured my life savings into this restaurant.
1: Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you already buried successful as far as i heard from well it's still (laughs) early you
3: know things can change but so far things are going well yeah i think Mm. things have been very very good so far
1: right and uh, the landscape of ramen in america changed dramatically since you started making ramen 13 years ago so how do you see the changes in the ramen culture in chicago and in america overall and also what do you think will happen in the american ramen culture
3: Yeah, that's such a difficult question. I think about this a lot, really. I think that certainly in the last four to five years, you started seeing an emergence of these, I guess, kodawari-style shops or a handful of really dedicated professionals who just genuinely loved ramen and wanted to make ramen shops because they love ramen. And I feel like there are only a handful of those in the United States right now. But every year or two, there's another... Couple people who say, you know what, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring or I wanna get involved in this. And the more of us that kind of stick together and become communal about our ramen craft, the better I think ramen is poised to be in the United States. I think for a long time in the United States, ramen was kind of a niche food and then it exploded but was inundated by pre manufactured components, pre manufactured tareas, pre manufactured soup bases, pre manufactured oils or toppings, even. Because of this influx of Japanese chains who recognized this opportunity to make money. And you're starting to see a little bit of a pushback away from that, I think, in some capacity. Certainly a number of the chains that opened in Chicago have since closed their doors because I think people have starting to wise up to kind of what those foods are. And they're looking for something a little more compelling and more distinct in their ramen. They don't just want the same ramen that everybody else is selling. It's not perfect Mm -hmm. yet, but – these handful of shops that are making everything in-house, these handful of shops that are kind of doing a dish that is their own or distinctly their style, they're becoming more prevalent. It's slow, but it's happening. And I think when that happens, you're going to see more interesting ramen develop. You know, And that was a recent phenomenon. You know, It, mm-hmm. it hasn't been that way for a long time. And I mean, I think that's going to continue to happen.
1: Right. So I think we are seeing this kind of dichotomy of uh, mass market style ramen, but we started to realize you can really geek out and it's worth yeah. doing it. Ramen is a casual image, is image, but it's so deep. It's like a sushi, right? The supermarket sushi, or you can pay $500 per person sushi. because exactly. You can go into there <laughs> as, as deep as you want and you can right. pursue the quality. And uh, you can be probably pretty philosophical and spiritual about what you use Cause there's a history in there and you can always improve because that kind of tradition is supposed to be always kind of right developed and what you're doing i think is very interesting and uh, i'm sure hokkaido ramen there's if there's a god of hokkaido ramen <laughs> he's thanking you so.
3: <laughs> i hope honestly that would be very flattering Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be confirming, redefining, or going back to what it was. That w- Looking at the roots, you're doing it very objectively, analytically, which we educate uh, everybody, including Japanese mm-hmm. people. And I really admire what you're doing. So, so what are your plans and dreams?
3: Yeah, I'm, it's funny. People ask that even when I was in the process of opening the shop. Like, what are your long-term goals? And it's like, let me open the shop first and find and get back to you. So now the shop is open. And the shop is operating. And, and I think my goals are still fairly short-term because the shop is still fr- pretty new and fresh. I think that the goals are so much that, one, I want to get this place to a place of stability and sustainability in terms of the workflow and in terms of people's lives at the shop. I feel like right now, that's pretty close for everybody except me. <laughs> for me, I I could see myself becoming very burnt out if I had to keep working 16 hours a day indefinitely. And so part of that is building a team of support for when I do get sick or when I do need to take a day off or when something bad happens in my life, right? Like things are going to happen to me just as they happen to everyone else. And I need to make sure that our team can support not just each other, but me as well. So that's kind of the next phase is to build a level of autonomy in the staff and to make them feel empowered and capable enough to take over the reins when I can't be there. And I think we're close, but we're not there yet. I think you give us another three, four months and we'll be more comfortable with that. Certainly I will be more comfortable with it, which is important as I'm the boss. That's the short term goal. The long term goal, I don't really know yet. You know, I would love for this restaurant to exist for a long time. I think that's really the long term goal. I I want this to be a restaurant that is seen as, you know, an important part of Chicago's landscape because it has existed for a while and because it says something about this dish, you know, in a meaningful way. That's just gonna take time. You can't become a, a stalwart of a dining scene overnight. You have to build credibility, and you have to build a team of people who care, and you have to build, you know, the, the right recognition. And that's just going to take the work of doing this dish every day and doing it the best that you can every day. And that's what we try to do. So I'm I'm, I'm optimistic, but that goal is pretty foundational. It's just like. I know it sounds corny, but it's like just exist. I think a lot of people assume that I'm going to open another shop or open you know, a chain or try and do some licensing deal. I have not humored any of those ideas. I would just like to run this shop and see how the shop goes. I would like the shop to be successful for a long period of time. If we can do that, right. I'll be pretty happy.
1: Mm, right. And as far well as I know, um, you're very solid and very um, sensible about what you do. But once you do, it's very stable. So I think you're going to make it very stable. But also, you probably come up with something in the process of running a restaurant. So, yeah, please do keep me posted. And uh, you, I'm sure you're going to come back and talk about your progress or next plans or anything. So please do of so. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so where can we find your updates online and on social media?
3: So the two places are probably um, the, my personal Instagram page, which is lord, or the Instagram page of the restaurant that is just Akahoshi Ramen, one word. You can also go to our website, akahoshiramen.com, where you can find the menu. You can find ways to book reservations. You can find information about the restaurant, information about me, and you can see my email if you ever want to ask any questions, which is info at akahoshiramen.com. <sighs>
1: Awesome. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mike, and hopefully you get some sleep.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
1: So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanits at theheritagevideonetwork.org or kikukatema.com. Japanits' weekly program is always available at heritagevideonetwork.org as well as on iTunes, the channel, and Spotify as a podcast. engineer is Liam Warner and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Bun Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.